Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. On this episode, my guest is Chris Sutherland. Chris is the current drummer for Canadian classic rock legends Streetheart and is known for his years playing with Kim Mitchell, Sass Jordan, Saga, The Roadhammers, Randy Bachman, George Canyon, and many more. He was the drummer for the Mervis Theatre productions of N. Juliet, Dear Evan Hansen, Kinky Boots, Bat Out of Hell, The Bodyguard, and the long-running Toronto production of Mamma Mia!, He is an in-demand musician known for his diversity and ability to cover almost any style. Currently, Chris has many new projects on the go, including a duo project with his wife Christina, featuring music by composer Philip Glass, reinterpreted for drum set and classical piano. In our interview, we talk about what it was like working as a session musician for many of the artists he admired during his formative years. We also discuss the challenges encountered working as a drummer for Broadway musicals and why it's essential to embrace changes in technology in order to adapt and stay creative as an artist. Let's get started. Chris, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. I uh, first met you back at the Ralph Angelillo Drum Festival the last time it was through in Quebec City, and I was really inspired by your performance, both playing along with the tracks that you did and also your performance with your fiance at the time, but yeah. now wife, Christina, doing the the duet project with the Philip Glass compositions. Yeah. And so I'd like to get into that as well too. Awesome. But you were originally born and raised in Brandon, Manitoba. Yeah. How did all of this drumming thing start for you? Um, a lot of people in my family were musicians. My dad was a musician. My uncle was a musician. And I was that little kid that everybody gave records to. I was always into records. And like, by the time I was five, I was showing an interest in things. So my parents got me a drum set when I was five. And so, you know, and it, and that was just like childhood stuff for a while. Like, you know, it was just a fun toy with the rest of my toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, like, at the same time, my house was full of really cool music. Like, you know, it was really full of, like, Stax and Motown and R- all the R&B and, you know, a lot of, like, horn band stuff like Chicago and, you know, that kind of thing. So that was kind of my upbringing. And I had, like, crazy moments of, you know, getting a Gino Vanelli record for Christmas when, you know, and I'd be young, like eight or nine kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it just started to catch eventually where it was like, okay, this is what we're doing now. And then it really turned into something from there. But yeah, always encouraged. I don't know how my parents did it. I, I played drums for hours and hours every day in the basement. So yeah. Which is a true blessing because not everyone gets that opportunity that's for sure. And one of the things that I like as well is that it all started out being interested in music and wanting to be 
part of that whole process. Whereas I find now when you look at people starting out now, they want to be drummers because they're inspired by solo drum videos that they right. see online and there is value to a lot of that but right. i just find now the whole focus when people are starting out has kind of gone more to drum centric as opposed I'm to music and you can definitely tell people that kind of started out following the musical path and they just happen right. to choose drums as their outlet right and i think like for me it's really defined by like some early influences of mine and that would be you know i did have one early influence it was kind of a busy player obviously mitch mitch mitchell from Jimi hendrix yep. and that was a really early one for me where i was like drums but listen to those drums you know and was really drawn to it but i knew hundreds of r b songs when i was 12 and 13 years old and then when I was, by the time I was 14 or 15, I was like playing in wedding bands around Brandon, playing a lot of R&B and it was always about grooving and it was always about songs. And then, then my real influences, you know, the core people became like, it's, you know, it's the three dudes, it's Jeff Percaro, it's Carlos Vega and it's John Robinson. Mm -hmm. And none of those guys are solo guys. And you know, all my influences were them playing on hit records, you know, so I was always way more into that than I was into soloing. And of course, when I was a teenager, you go down the path, you know, and yes. I was into Rush, but I was just explaining to someone the other day, my, I, you know, I love Neil, you have to love Neil, you have to appreciate Neil, but he wasn't really one of my guys, like it didn't stick with me because i had this weird moment of finding uk night after night oh yes yeah the terry bozio. with terry bozio when i was probably about 13 or 14 i discovered that and went oh now i that's that's what progressive rock sounds like to me so i went after that at that point and sort of left rush behind i was like obsessed with that record and many things but my real obsession came with like trying to learn every single Toto song, mm -hmm. trying to learn, you know, and what I really enjoyed when I was, I would play along to records and the ones that would really feel right to me were things like, you know, playing Michael Jackson records, like burn this disco down and stuff like that. And it's, it was just all about grooves and dance music and that kind of stuff that really excited me early. It was really what my influences were early on, you know, because I'm Canadian and I was a teenager and I grew up being a drummer. I was a huge Rush fan, but I found yeah. for me, I got into Rush kind of in their middle period, Grace Under Pressure, Signals and, the, yeah. and Power Windows, which is a era that you either kind of like or don't like. And I love. Yeah. I think one of the things that I particularly like about that era and Neil's playing in particular is that it was grooves. There was, right. there was less technical stuff in the stuff that he played and it was the band just rocking, just grooving. And, and that spoke more to me than right. some of the complexities of some of the, the early material. I, I appreciate everything, but yeah. there's always, you always tend to gravitate towards the, those things that kind of hit you in the first place. And it was always yeah. about feel and groove. How did that music make yeah. me feel? I always liked Rush and I always liked Neil and, 
you know, I got to know Getty and Alex a bit, although I never met Neil, you know, and I, I love it and appreciate it and had many records. He just wasn't my guy as much yep. as people were, you know, so my influences ended up being more groove, more like pocket players or, you know, dance music players. I was into dance music, always was, you know, still am kind of thing. One of my early heroes who also happened to be my first private drum teacher was Paul DeLong because right. I, was a, I was a huge Kim Mitchell fan. And the thing I always loved about Paul's playing is that he didn't sound like anyone else around that time so you hear all the music on the radio and a lot of that stuff got a lot of airplay but there was something different about the touch and the way that he played and a lot of the grooves and things were just there was a solid element but still just a little bit of a quirk to wow. them that just made them magical you actually were fortunate enough to actually play with kim mitchell for almost about 15 years yeah like 14 and a half kind of thing yeah what was that experience like for you uh it was interesting because i mean i can kind of quickly tell you the whole story i'd been I'd been in Toronto a few years and I'd been playing at the Orbit Room, which was like, you know, the hub of music in Toronto forever. And I used to do every Sunday night there for about five years. And it's, you know, my whole career from Toronto, from the minute I moved to Toronto is like traced to about three people that like said, hey, you should check this guy out. Or I did a gig with them. And everything I've ever done has come from that. Basically, you can draw the family tree. And uh, there was a period where Randy Cook was still playing with Kim and he was subbing out a lot. And I had done an R&B gig with Gary Bright, who was playing keyboards with him at the time. And I was friends with Randy and they both kind of said my name to Kim. And so he started just randomly coming to the Orbit Room every week to see us play. And it was like, there kind of became like a little joke of like, you know, <laughs> almost my stalker or something. And then... I was subbing some gigs for Randy and they went really well. And then uh, there was a chance to sub a few more, but it looked like Randy wasn't gonna come back. So it was a bit like subbing and auditioning. And, you know, I had one of those nights where I just literally played the gig of my life. Like if my whole career, that's in the top three of like, I didn't want to note back, it was, it was just pouring out of me with ease that night. And, you know, then Kim offered me the gig after that. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, at that time, I was a real fan. I owned every record. I owned every Max Webster record. And, but especially the Kim Mitchell catalog, like the EP and the first two albums, even Rockland, I knew every note already. So, like Randy Cook taught me the gig over the phone, funny enough. <laughs> he'd be like, set the phone down and go, here's the ending to this one. Write this down. And he'd set the phone down. And he'd like yell from the other side of the room and play something on his drum set. And I'd scratch it out. And then Kim and I had one rehearsal where we like ran some endings. And he went, ah, it'll be fine. And that was <laughs> I was on stage. It was the craziest thing. But then there was a moment I hadn't I hadn't been in the band long, maybe six months. And I remember it very clearly. We were in Victoria and he started playing Misdemeanor from the EP. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I just jumped in and then we proceeded to like without even really talking about it. We played every single song on the EP 
at soundcheck, just jammed them. And then he turns around and goes, hey, wait a minute. How, how do you know all these songs? And I go, dude, you're Kim Mitchell. Of course I know all these songs. And he was just like, oh, he's so confused. But it was like inside of me, there was like that teenager going like, I've, I've waited for this moment my whole life. I know these songs inside now, you know, and I definitely consider Paul DeLong an influence. Like those records were huge for me. And, you know, when Paul plays around Toronto, I still go see him play all the time because I'm a giant fan. And, and when he like sat in on a few gigs with Kim a couple of years ago, and, you know, it's like, there it is, Paul playing all we are. There's nothing like it, you know? And so it's a pretty, you're right. It's a very magical thing. And so that experience with Kim was great because he really like to a almost problematic level did the like, no, you can play whatever you want. They were like, you know, I'd be trying to figure out weird Gary McCracken fills that just didn't come naturally. And he'd be like, you don't have to play all that stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, you kind of do. <laughs> and he'd be like, okay. But it was a really good, you know, man, talk about getting thrown in the deep end. You know, that was the first gig I'd done at that level with really with musicians that good, you know, and there was so much magic in those 14 years of, you know, just being able to go anywhere at any time. Once we got to know each other so well, that band could just endlessly take chances on stage and the craziest stuff would happen. Then it would become part of a song forever. And, you know, it was really great. You have a reputation for being a really solid professional player, but I think one of the reasons why you've earned that reputation is that first of all you're always prepared and secondly you're a fan of the music that you're playing right and that passion comes through you can go to gigs and you can see great players sitting in playing some great parts but they just there's something that isn't clicking and it's usually just because it's a job right. and there's something very different about being a fan of the music that you play and that's something that definitely mm -hmm. comes across in the things that you do yeah, I, you know, it's funny, like I'm playing with Streetheart these days and that these days, those are all very old friend of my, friends of mine. And, you know, I played in that band for five minutes in like 1997. And uh, so I'm, you know, I've been part of that family. I've played with those musicians half my life now, but I still to this day, almost every show look up at Jeff Neal playing guitar or Daryl playing keyboards and go like, holy, that's, <laughs> that's those guys from when I was 13 and they blew my head off in Brandon, you know? So yeah, it really means a lot to me to like appreciate the artists I play for, especially like when I'm out in classic rock world, like I toured with Saga, things like that. You go like, these people have really accomplished some things, mm -hmm. you know? So I always just, respect it and sit there and soak it up and you know even whether the situation is good or bad or not i can still always go yeah but there's still ten thousand people out there singing the song back at us something went correct you know <laughs> so they did something right sometimes you might be playing music that you've been playing for a really long time and it becomes sort of second nature to them. But the thing you always have to remember is that the audience, it may be the first time they've ever seen 
the band playing their favorite song and those moments are magical and they they spark memories to the audience and that's something that i find is helpful as a musician because you may be tired of playing certain things but then you just have to get back into the headspace of that person who has been waiting six months or 30 years to get the opportunity to come and see their band that was their favorite band and to hear them play that song that they fell in love to in high school or Absolutely. or all those different moments because music sparks that passion and brings you back to those memories and that's something i think that we really need to remember and i think it really helps us appreciate the work that we do that much more i mean i'm probably like the nerdiest nerd you can find for like being a nerd fan of things like you can ask me anything about Toto and I know it, you know, things like that. So I actually get it when people are fans of a band I'm playing with, you know, and I do so much sideman stuff that sometimes I'm not attached to the initial memory, mm -hmm. but you still want to honor it for people because I feel the same way, you know, like going to see bands I love. It's interesting playing like the classic rock scene that you get to see and meet, you know, lots of people that, you know, I'm friends with so many people now that if you'd have told me this when I was 13, I just would never have believed you, you know, it's like, oh, you're pals with that guy now, you know, it's, it's amazing. Going back to Paul DeLong for a second, because yeah. he was my first drum teacher when I was 15 and I'm 51 now. And yeah. so I've known him for a really long time. And he was the second guest on my podcast. And it, to me, it was surreal because even though I'm having this conversation with this person I've known for so long throughout my life, who's been so inspirational to me. Yeah. I'm still kicking myself going, oh my God, it's the guy that played on the record that I love. And I, I, I can't believe I got a chance to meet him, let alone yeah. I've been to his house, uh, you know, his, the, all the different places that he's lived. And, and there's still that fan aspect that's just magical, even all after all of those years. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think deep down, it's, it's weird when you see people forget that. But I think deep down it happens, you know, I without telling the whole long story, I've seen a pretty famous rock star, really famous rock star, freak out on Kim Mitchell and go like, dude, we followed you all over to blah, blah, blah. And Kim was going, what? But it's like, no, man, it's like, you know, everybody's got something that made them want to do this. And you always got to appreciate it, you know. Which is also why, like, I really, if I'm learning songs with Kim or Streetheart, I really respect the parts. Like, with Streetheart, I went back on the first record. Some of that stuff is really hard. And, like, I recently, I was filling in with Kim Mitchell recently for a few shows. And uh, uh, we played with Loverboy. And Matt Fournette is the original Streetheart drummer. Okay, so yeah. I went to him and just went, okay you gotta show me this tune what did you actually play and i would funny enough i was very close but it wasn't what he played you know and so there's things like that that it's like no i actually want it to be right even just so it is right you know instead of 
phoned in. You brought up uh, UK, the live album, Night After Night, featuring Terry Bozio. I, I bought the vinyl album. I remember I got on the I got on the bus. I went down to the subway. I went downtown wow. Toronto. You, you go through all the record stores. You track the albums down. You pay your money. You carry all your records. You get back on the subway. You got a, you got a half hour subway ride, then another half hour bus ride, and you just devour the liner notes. Yeah. And by the time you get home, you just you've you've read all the lyrics you've done all of these things and you just you're so excited and there was no such thing as ipods there was no such thing as right. that time so you lived with and devoured the you know seven or eight tracks on that vinyl record and you just flip it over again and it just it gets ingrained into you and that's one of the things that i find very different now about how people get absorbed with music because there's so much stuff out there that yeah. it it becomes background and they're just there's something about being obsessive and just so dedicated to really the limited options that you have at that time and and i miss those days yeah yeah and i mean like that that as much as i've had education you know i i did a lot of education growing up but early on it was really playing to records and just like obsessively turning that thing over and over and over and one song at a time and you know and there's a little funny story of like i was i was practicing along i can even remember what record it was it was pat travers black pearl which is really hard to find now funny enough um and i i knew it so well and the record had a skip in it and i knew the skip mm -hmm. i knew where the skip went and and one day I went upstairs and my dad just goes, he goes, did you learn the skip in the record? And I was like, yeah, then I don't have to stop. And he just kind of shook his head or whatever. But, you know, that's how into it I was, I, you know. And funny enough, I'm going back trying to find vinyl now of all the weird records that influenced me growing up, you know. But you're right. It, it was a whole different experience. And funny with the UK thing is, there's footage on YouTube now that like in my wildest dreams, I never would have been able to see back then, you know, mm -hmm. I would have given anything to see video of that. And now there it is. It's appeared, you know. So technology is definitely a good thing, but I said you still want to reminisce back to those those times when you really right. absorbed yourself and uh and really had to work to track things down just not go to a search engine and to me that was half the joy it was like you may spend years trying to find that elusive record that you had heard about once and you read it in a magazine and you might find it in a used record store someone in a bargain bin half scratched up for a dollar and you get so excited about it anyway because it's like finding treasure or finding a really cool record store that had imports and finding like crazy imports you didn't know existed you know that kind of stuff was it's it's just all out there now which is really weird you know kind of amazing but really weird you were born and raised in Manitoba, um, yeah. you're now located in Toronto. Yeah. In between then, around you were 18, you actually moved to Los Angeles and you attended the Musicians Institute of Technology. Yeah. So what, what sparked that move? Well, I mean, I was one of those kids that, you know, I didn't fit in the mold in high school, but 
I was a bit of a weird jazz prodigy go, growing up. So I was getting noticed. I was in band. I was in stage band. And, you know, I we went to the like Canadian stage band festival stuff. Right. And over the course of a couple of years, I got to know Steve Houghton and took a bunch of private lessons with him as a teenager. And he said to my parents, he's like, okay, you know, your kid's flunking out of school and like, you know, he's got what it takes. Send him to me. I'll keep an eye on him. This will be great. And I don't know what parents decide to like ship off their 18 year old from Brandon to Hollywood. But <laughs> I did. And, uh, and Steve was, I love Steve to death, but he was borderline the whiplash teacher. And, but he kicked my butt so hard. And then, but the real like joy that happened when I was there was Joe Percaro and Casey Shirell. Like those two people dramatically changed my life. And even at, you know, I was like 19 years old, so not figured out. I was a crazy mess. And, and they just kept keeping me on the path and keeping it going and, you know, and really made me feel like I mattered, even though I was just a kid. And that, I mean, that's really a Precaro thing though. Like I was fortunate enough to hang with Jeff a couple of times because of being one of Joe's students. Yep. And, and they were all like, you know, they would always be like, you run into them at the baked potato and Jeff would literally be like, dude, how are you? Sit down, you know, and you weren't the kid. You were like, oh, I'm in the club. How the hell am I in the club? I'm a kid, you know, but they're like, oh no, you're Joe's student. You're good. We're cool. Hey, come and hang, you know, and they wouldn't even speak to you like you were a punk kid. They would, you're just in the loop. And so, you know, those, Joe Percaro really changed my life and taught me a lot of lessons. He taught me a, a motion lesson, a motion lesson that I use every day of my life. And it like crosses my mind of like object in motion stays in motion. So it's basically the theory of if you're playing a rhythm like this, all the downbeats are right hands, all the upbeats are left hands. So if you're playing a push on the beat, it's a right. If you're playing a push on off the beat, it's a left. Don't break the motion, you know. Mm -hmm. and once I learned all that, I changed my drumming forever. And to this day, it stays with me all the time when I'm playing. Um, and Casey Shirell was really like, the zen teacher to the extent that like i some of the students would be like man that guy's class is weird like <laughs> weird stuff all the time but you'd go into his private lessons and he'd put photographs on the music stand and go play what you see and you'd be like i was like this is the greatest and some students were like what it's a photo you know and like things like the amount of times that guy poked me in the ribs because i was hunching over mm -hmm and like put a drumstick down my shirt so I'd sit up straight. When I when I left that school, I had the best posture of any drummer on the planet. It's it's not as good now because he's not around poking me in the ribs, but yeah. <laughs> you know, endless lessons from those two people and that changed my life. But as that wrapped up, you know, I was in the mode of like, 
I need to be in a band and I don't think I want to be a fusion guy anymore. And I don't think that's the way I'm going. And Joe's really great at like, we had this, you know, I had one of those, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. What the hell am I doing? You know? And he was like, I think you're good. Like you should go be in this band and just start doing it. Like, don't think about it, do it. And he was right. You know, it was time to get out there and do it. So I, I moved back to Winnipeg to join a band. Yeah. I, uh, I've been fortunate over the years because I'm well studied to have had uh, 17 drum teachers. Right. And, when I, and when I tell people that, they think that's kind of strange because they're like thinking, well, is aren't you learning the same things? I'm like, no, because every single one of them has a philosophy and a perspective that yeah. I want to tap into. So there's something just about being around these amazing people, whether they're unknown or whether they're legends right there's just something inspiring about being able to just be in a room and just ask them questions or hear their stories i find some of the most successful lessons i've ever had and some of the most profound ones involve no playing at all right it's just, it's just discussions yeah i can read so uh, you, you can put a thing something in front of me and i can figure that out yeah but conceptually that's what I want. You know, right. I, I've said before that I often make a point if I get a drum book that I really like to track the teacher down and take a lesson with them. Because when you study uh -huh. with the person that wrote the book, you look at the book in a completely different way. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of things that a lot of that PIT material in those days was so well written for like, things you actually need, you know, and there, there's been a few massive payoffs. Like my whole entry into doing theater was literally almost accidental. Funny enough, it involved Paul DeLong, but it was kind of accidental. And someone was just like, Hey man, do you read? And I was like, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a jazz college kid. <laughs> and, and they were like, would you want to do theater? And I was like, yeah. And so, you know, had I not had all that like day after day of grueling chart reading experience with Steve Houghton and those guys, you know, I got plopped in a Mamma Mia pit, terrified, you know, like, I don't know what I'm doing. How did I get here? And but what didn't terrify me was the charts. You know, I was like, OK, this part I know how to do. We're good, you know, and so that that school was really great um and especially at that time like the teachers were just so stellar in those days ralph humphrey and chuck silverman and efren toro and it was just endless you know so it was quite the place in those days not to mention even like my classmates in those days the amount i learned from them and like, you know, there was some real superstars in those days. Like, I don't know if you know Toss Panos. Yep. I mean, that guy's one of the greatest drummers on the planet. And I sort of feel like he sounded like that back then, you know. And and my really good friend, Matt Logg, uh, we went to school together and he just got the ACDC gig. So, you know. There was and there was a handful of players that were extremely scary at in their early 20s back then that were a great influence as well, you know.
And most of us are still friends, which is really cool. When, and when I was in college, I, I found I went in and I loved being around musicians that in my eyes were far superior than myself because yeah. that pushed you and it inspired you and you're all working on the same material. And then sometimes after three years, you start to realize that you're actually further along than they are because you've invested more time in doing the material and you've grown more whereas yeah. they came in and they were great and then even when you leave they're still exceptional but they're the right. same there you know at the end as they were at the beginning because they just they they had sort of developed that skill set but there's something to be said about taking the time putting in the effort and looking at it as a long game because you're right. never you're never going to get the results immediately you're going to work at it and then suddenly you may be three or four years into something and playing a gig or doing a session and suddenly realize oh my god this just feels different and it's because that thing that my teacher told me four years ago finally clicked yep it's even happened recently to me like I mean, you know, we had that weird pandemic thing that, you know, which long story short, I went through a few phases of like, you know, I didn't even play for about six months of that. But in another six months of that, I went, ah, maybe I'll go practice something that I never have time to practice. Like, let's practice playing open handed because mm -hmm. why not? I just put on any music that was on my phone and just like put it on shuffle and try and play everything left-handed for like a month. Cause it's like, I don't have anything else to do. Let's play left-handed all month. And like it weirdly paid off in strange ways. You know, I find all these new things now because of it, but I actually like really ripped my technique apart in the, in that time. And when like, there was a left-hand thing I had that was just driving me insane for years. And I went and fixed it, which was weird because I wouldn't normally have time or really pay attention to, you know, I'm out there working and doing it. And my practice these days mostly just involves learning new material. You know, if there's something I can't play, I work on it. And uh, but yeah, anyway, so going back to the point, yeah, it's you can really evolve. And some of those like PIT Joe Percaro things were a little like oh i get it like why don't 30 years later great you know you generally tend to get really inspired by the things that people are playing and what i started to find probably going back about 10 years ago is that i started to get more inspired by how people were playing not what they were playing because i'd watch oh, things yeah. and go i want to play as smoothly as that guy is playing it's not a matter of like technically what they're doing it's just how do i not look rigid i had this conversation with mark kelso because he's a great example of this but it's like i, I said to him it's like watching you dance when 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 mark plays and when you watch a, a great musician play it's it's literally a dance the motions and things that they get that's mm. what inspired me and i started to go back and i started back at the beginning i revamped my technique i'm a student of dom familiero so he's kind of wow. worked me through all of these things and i remember being at my first in-person lesson at dom's place and you're literally sitting 
on a drum stool. There's a practice pad in front of you. There are three cameras on you. There's mirrors all over the place and there's a giant screen. And he's like, okay. And he goes through this checklist and, and he said, like, here's a list of 10 things that you need to check yourself before you actually play a note and then he makes it go through and 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 before you even hit the drum he he walks you through all of this stuff and he's like okay are your arms at the right level because they feel like they are but if you're looking in the mirror right you're slouching yes and then you know he's like when you go home you gotta buy a mirror and i hate looking at myself in the mirror but (laughs) i went and i bought a mirror and i set it up and it made an unbelievable difference right because it's all about awareness yeah. And, and and motion and i found i would you know i would lower my arms and i would sit better and my little weird funky left hand thing that paul delong once said to me because your left hand is funky and not in a cool way so <laughs> so now i need to go back and kind of fix that and i literally started all over again but i did the work taking the guidance from the people that are the masters and i put my faith in them yeah and i didn't question what they told right. me to do I just did the work and it made an unbelievable difference. And now I find when I'm playing, I'm more relaxed. I'm hitting at half the volume that I played before. I'm still getting the volume, but I don't have to hit to get the volume because you're playing with, with that technique element. And for me, that's where my passion as a drummer really just got sparked all over again, because now it felt better to play the drums before it was always about the technical aspect. It was really about that motion and that movement. Yeah. And you know, it's funny when you do a lot of that work and it starts paying off, it is really inspiring, you know, and as the pandemic was ending and, you know, we're starting to gather again, a friend of mine came over to see this drum kit I had and I just sat down and was like, just playing some stuff. And I was kind of, shredding a little bit and he just went he goes who are you like where did all that come from i'm like well that's what happens when you get locked in a room for a year you know nothing else to do but you know i've really like in the last few years really changed my playing a lot and the person that you know plays the big loud rock gigs is still there fortunately it's getting way more efficient you know what i mean i figured out a few more things and I've been doing that for years and years at a really high level. And I was still able in the last year or so to refine it again, you know? And recently Matt Fournette said to me, he goes, so you're playing with Streetheart again. He goes, that's kind of like sports, hey? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like half the songs are like 160, 155. It's like, can we play a ballad guys, you know? I remember years ago, I played in an original band and there was one song they had written that was all programmed on a drum machine. So of course it meant that it, well, human really couldn't technically play all the stuff because it was like a progressive rock sort of thing. So I had to reorchestrate it so that I could actually play the stuff. And there's like double kick and all of this stuff. And I, and I found it, once I learned it, it was not that hard to play. And I would right. go through and it was like, this is pretty comfortable. Then we would play a Ramones cover and I could barely make it through the song because <laughs> they're so fast that I just couldn't play eighth notes enough. So I yeah. ended up having to switch to quarter notes. I'm like, that's a problem. So it's not the complexity. It's all about how you play right? so that you're not overworking yourself. And now I get great joy out of the fact that I can now play simple, fast eighth note songs 
comfortably because right. you've invested the time but that's all just part of you know reevaluating what you're doing and yeah. wanting to make it much more comfortable well and some of that for me obviously came from that grip stuff that i worked on but another big discovery i made was i'm sitting too far back i'm like you know sort of reaching out instead of and it was like and i just had to get used to it and the amount of difference just doing that made was unbelievable but you know it's about staying looking for it always i think you were really involved in the musical theater circuit and that's something that i've kind of been watching your posts and really following a lot of the things that you're doing and i'm really inspired by that one of my dreams is always to kind of you know do some musical theater stuff and i did some stuff in high school and then it was like for 30 years i didn't do anything and now i'm back playing some things kind of at a like more of a, like a local level but i'm yeah. finding a lot of joy in that but one of the things about working musical theater is that yes there are charts but there's also a lot of charts that involve interpretation and there's other things that uh, really involve playing everything exactly the way that it's written on the page and that takes a skill set to know what you are actually supposed to be doing but when we were at the uh, Ralph Angelillo Drum Festival last time, part of your segment is that you talked about working in that circuit. And you played a number of tracks. And one of the things that you had said that really resonated with me and inspired me was even though you're playing these shows and you're playing them over and over again, you have to play every single show as if it's the perfect take on the record because that's what the audience is expecting to see. And they don't know that you're there. Like you're, yeah. you're, you're behind the scenes. If it doesn't sound like the record that they have, then there's something wrong. So it requires a great dedication and commitment. And I found that really inspiring and pushed me when I get these opportunities to work that much harder to really try and nail the gig. So how do you find when you're doing all these things, what's your approach in terms of preparation? The interesting thing is, I think that scene has really changed dramatically in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, where the shows, I'm not going to say old shows aren't hard, because some of them are really hard, West Side Stories, bananas, but the level of expectation of ability and just the kind of things that are happening in pits now, like entire shows running on a click, you know, entire shows running on clicks that are moving, that are like all kinds of tempo changes, all kinds of things, playing to tracks, being able to handle electronics, you know, and re like really being able to play to a click, not just a bit, a lot. And so I think it's really become exceptionally hard now. And when I was doing Dear Evan Hansen, there was this discussion about like that drum book is mind blowing hard. And there was this discussion in New York kind of joking around about it. And one of the high ups said, he goes, yeah, if I had to describe that drum book, I would call it optimistic. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just so hard, you know. And then, you know, the king of them all, Hamilton, it's just like I've been subbing on that show lately, and it's just so unbelievably overwhelming with the amount of things to deal with and the amount of material. It's a, a two and a half hour play, I believe, or like 215 of playing 
So a lot of theater shows you play and then you sit, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, and then there's three minutes of dialogue and then we play another song. And then there's this Hamilton, everything is, all dialogue is under a groove with a groove under it or in a song. So it's somewhat like an opera in that way. And that the music never stops from start to finish. And it's a hip hop show. So it's almost all drums. And in act one, there's maybe three minutes you're not playing. And in act two, there's about five minutes you're not playing. Other than that, it's you and your, you and the percussionist are that show. And the level of expectation is terrifying. Like, even when I got offered to sub on that show, I even went, um, I don't know how many times am I going to get to play it? Uh, uh, and then they sort of said, no, none of the Hamilton drummers like playing eight shows a week because it's so hard. Mm -hmm. It's just like such a hard burnout that so they kind of were like, well, we want someone to do one a week in Toronto when the tour is here. So I was like, OK, I'll learn it. And the first bunch of times I was in is absolutely the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done in my life, you know, and borderline not even fun at that point. <laughs> but, you know, it's like a badge of honor once you've learned that thing, you know, and actually one of the contractors said that to me, he goes, hey, man, you know, once you put Hamilton on your resume, no one ever will ask if you can handle a gig. You know, it's like, oh, can they hand? Oh, they did Hamilton. Never mind. They can handle anything, you know. So it's that scene has become shows are really hard now. There's no like there's barely any shows that are easy anymore, you know. And even Mamma Mia, I would consider that an easy show. But you also really have to be able to groove and you really got to be able to play to a click. And, you know, there's still hard elements. And it, again, I mean, I'm just really this person. I'm this person with any show I play with Kim Mitchell or Streetheart. I almost play the same fills every night. I'm not when I learn a show, I'm not very jammy, you know. And of course, there's always a few spots in any show, even Hamilton, where you can play what you want and light it up for a few bars. You know, there's a drum solo in the play out of Hamilton that's open, but I really get into like playing the perfect show, which that's what it's all about. Like you were saying, the consistency and the, you know, being the same every night. And it goes back to the same thing as the rock band thing. Like that might be the first time somebody sees Anne Juliet or Hamilton ever. So, and it might change their life. So you don't want to have a stinker. No. Then the other thing that's happening at the same time in that scene now is that because these books are so hard now, the people that are in the pit are that good. So you don't want to be the person that's not, you know, it's there's like a real competitive, like no mistakes world down there, you know, and a good mistake is still a good chuckle in a pit. You just don't want to be the person wiping out over and over, you know, right away expected to be perfect. It's pretty wild. And that that really works for me. That excites me. And that keeps me from burning out on a longer run, you know. 
I just really like it. You have the discipline to put the time into this and you just you've got the right mentality and headspace where you enjoy that sort of challenge. It's definitely not the gig for most people because it can be pretty high stress and your right. focus has to be so exceptional because one tiny little change, you know, makes a significant difference. And one of the things that I found is that we'd go through and I'd set things up kind of like to the left of my hi hat because, you know, there might be a percussion book and a drum book, but right. there might be one person that has to cover both things and you can't cover everything all yeah. the time but you have to choose those different elements and it and and you have to set things up because you don't want to you know drop that stick on the ground no. while you're flipping over to the brush and then you got to pick up the egg shaker to do this and then you've oh, got man. your left hand you're playing the bongo parts and i love that challenge because you look at it on paper and go this doesn't look that technical but being yeah. able to pull things off and choreograph everything that to me that's half the fun it's funny, there's there's a moment in Dear Evan Hansen that when I, I can't even quite remember where it is now, but when I was learning the show, they sent me to New York to learn the show. And I sat with Jamie Evelyn, who played it on Broadway, who's now a good friend of mine, monster Broadway drummer. And there's one section where you make a transition from rods to sticks, but you're playing this crazy part as it happens. And... He just says to me at, at the end of the act, he goes, okay, I'll teach it to you. There's only one way. He goes, don't bother trying to figure out any other way to do this. This is the only way there. And it was like the craziest stick ditch during a fill, grab the other stick thing and play this thing with the left hand for a second while you get there. And, and he goes, but if you ever find a different way, tell me, because I, because I hate doing it. And, you know, it doesn't always go smooth. It was so hard. And so there's many moments like that. And it really is choreographed. And like the weird skills you have to learn, like on Kinky Boots, there was 11 pedals on the floor. And many of them were like hi-hat heel moves to start and stop loops and triggers and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. As a result of playing Kinky Boots and learning that thing, I have a foolproof iPad page turn move with my left heel that never fails me, you know, <laughs> that that just weird little skills you pick up learning these crazy parts that's where all of the time spent working on the crazy independent coordination exercises come into play and there's one another section in dear evan hansen that's kind of famous of like you're playing a shaker with your right hand and this pattern with your feet bass drum hi-hat but then there's all of a sudden a ride cymbal pattern with your left hand that rhythmically it's like the things are on the upbeat and the first time i saw it i went i don't know if that's even possible like i don't think i and it literally was all the way to like okay hand goes forward this hand goes here and i phoned my buddy dave fatel who dave has really great independence and i'm like hey man i sent him the screen grab i'm like how long does it take you to pull this together? And he messaged me back. He's like, about 10 minutes. <laughs> but I go, yeah, but you have amazing independence. And I'm like, yeah, I can't play it at all. So then the next day he messages me back and he goes, dude, <laughs> accents on the shaker are on the upbeats. And I go, yeah. And he goes, 
I can't play it at all. <laughs> and then by, you know, he subbed for me on that show. So we both could play it at a certain point. But it's funny now that independence is just there. I can still play the part, you know, but it was zero when I got the book. I was like, oh, we have a problem. <laughs> One of the other projects that we were talking about a little bit earlier was your duet project with your wife, where you right. are basically, she's a classical pianist and an exceptionally good one. And you did this project where you took the music of Philip Glass, Philip Glass Etudes, and basically created a drum set and a piano version of these ones, which you actually played at the uh, at the drum yeah. festival. How did that come about? That was a weird pandemic moment where the Thunder Bay Symphony, Tina's from Thunder Bay, the Thunder Bay Symphony asked her if she could do an online thing with her partner for Valentine's Day, because they were like, well, who's what musicians do we know who have partners that are musicians? We were like, I guess we could do a thing like, I don't know, we have nothing else to do. And then we were like, what could we play together? Like we were looking at all these tunes and she had this book of the Philip Glass piano etudes one to 20 that she was just playing as, you know, a practice thing for about a year. And cause they're challenging and fun. And, and I was always kind of really digging them because of all the like really cool polyrhythmic elements and the, you know, tons of like five against four, seven against four patterns and four patterns over odd bars, things like that. And I was kind of digging them and I went, well, there's probably one of those we could make work, you know, like, you know, almost jazz kind of way or something. So we, we put together number 11 and, you know, kind of went, I don't know. And I was always reluctant about being like, oh, this drummer guy smashing over these classical things. And, and the reaction was like completely insane. People loved it. And we were like, oh, and then we had all these people going, you got to keep going. You got to do more. And we're like, okay, maybe this is a thing. So we did a couple more and then it really just turned into like, oh, we have a project on our hands and it's really growing and evolving right now. So yeah, so we, we demoed a bunch of them, maybe like 12 of the 20 and did little videos for them and then we got asked to play live a few times which we're like wow we weren't even prepared for this but i guess we can make it happen and then like the first real full go of it was at ralph angelillo's drum fest that you were at yeah and, you know there was even a moment that tina said she had the same moment that right before we were about to play we had this like what the hell are we doing right now moment? Like, this is insanity. Because there's such crazy pieces of music, you know? And the funny thing is, is, I started by like, just really playing what I felt from a real jazz background standpoint. But then, you know, realizing that it's minimalist composing and Philip Glass whole concept of the thing, I decided I wanted to really like, try and keep it in the box, you know, of what the pieces are. Like, I didn't want to be dude shredding over Philip Glass songs. I wanted to be a part of the music. Going back to like, I like the music. I mm -hmm. I don't like solo drums. I like playing music, you know. I, I play music on drums, not drums on music, you know. So 
I really started like examining them again and we we got them so that it's it's kind of a thing now and at drum fest obviously because it was a drum fest I took a little more liberty with a few of them played a bit of a solo over something but uh, so then the big development that one of the things that was kind of happening, why I sort of delayed on this was that Yamaha Music asked Tina if she wanted to be an artist and do some promo stuff for them. And then they were like, but you know, if if Chris wanted to come back to Yamaha, because I was a Yamaha artist a million years ago. And uh, they're like, you know, if he wanted to play Yamaha again, we could do a whole big giant video series of this stuff. And then it turned into like, well, we're going to grab a studio and a film crew and just essentially film you making your record. And it was like, well, this all seems like a really great idea. Yes. So, so I, I switched drum companies after a very long time. And, you know, I, I love their product too. So, and I was there ages ago. And so we, we recently just spent four days in the studio recording the first 10 of the duets of the etudes, like fully recorded with a full film crew filming the whole thing. And like, it's still, you know, I haven't even gone into editing yet, but we went for live takes on everything, uh, full takes, and it was a pretty spectacular four days. So we're pretty excited. And then Yamaha is going to do a whole video series about that, about this insane Bosendorfer piano that Tina played and the drums I used. And um, they're doing a video series with that. And then as a crazy bonus thing, I'm sampling every drum I own and every drum on the planet that is Yamaha that I can find. And we're building a Chris Sutherland sample pack for DTX. And then we're going to transition all of this onto electronic instruments. And I'm going to play DTX and Tina's going to play all these pieces on a CP88 uh, keyboard because part of it for us is like a lot of this stuff comes off sounding really alternative sounding just the way philip glass's moods are written mm -hmm. it's very radiohead at times it's very like massive attack kind of things and that's always been such a huge influence on me and i'm not really known as an electronic person even though i listen to just like mountains of that kind of music we're going to take this thing there. So Yamaha is going to do a whole promo of us playing this same material. Here's the acoustic versions. Here's their remix versions off an electronic world. And I really, the technology has really gotten to the place now where this convinced me, actually, I saw a Larnell Lewis video of him playing the DTX, playing jazz, and I wasn't watching when it came on. And when I turned around and realized he was playing electronic drums, I was like, what is happening right now? Like, this is the first time we've been able to, you know, it's getting there finally. But the thing is, I don't want to necessarily recreate the acoustic versions. I want to, you know, I want to mess with the sounds like you would in an, in an electronic world. So, you know, it's a pretty crazy project.
the amount of time it takes to sample that deep, that many instruments of like, here's the eighties, you know, tour custom kit tuned low with dead heads. And, you know, it takes forever. We spent 45 minutes on a ride symbol, <laughs> just sampling one ride symbol. So it's pretty exciting. And it's really exciting to have Yamaha as a, you know, as a corporation get behind this project because it really just, you know, when it took it from like, oh, this little thing you're doing to like, oh, this is a big deal, you know? And now we're like, it's it's a pretty crazy thing and it's really still in development, but like we're getting a director on board and it's gonna become a full multimedia project. So, you know, potentially with like screens, maybe, maybe dancers, like, you know, modern, modern dance choreography and us playing. And I think the live element to that will be me mostly playing electronic because there really is a big struggle with like super loud drum set and grand piano. Yes. You know? Yeah, for and sure. It can be done, but it's really a struggle. And funny enough, at, a, at drum fest, I spent a really long time, had a really long conversation with Simon Phillips about him playing with, Hiromi and mm -hmm. handle all that. And it was, you know, they struggle too. So I may end up being fully electronic with that. And that's going to be a sort of new look for my career. So I'm not really known as, as an electronic person and it's somewhere I really want to go right now. And, and again, it ties into also theater world being an advantage over there. You know, it's one more thing I can bring that I've, while I've played electronics, I've never really been a programmer until now, you know? It's a skill set that I think is really essential these days because it's not going to go away and everything is starting to go more in that direction. It's something I'm woefully behind in terms of my knowledge, but it's something right. that I, I, I'm definitely really intrigued about because I want to embrace technology and embrace these different things just so that if I ever get certain opportunities that I'm excited and prepared to walk into them and I don't want to just walk away and say no I'm not even going to bother putting the time in right and you know it's always been funny like in Broadway world there's always a programmer around and there's always you know that's a job description in that land and you can literally go like hey you know hey Randy I need you know, that tambourine sound, I need it over here on this pad and it'll be there after lunch, you know? And it's like, I wouldn't mind, you know, being at the point where I can just go, oh yeah, click, click, click. And it's done. And none of that's that hard. You just got to take the dive, you know, and into Ableton and all that stuff. Cause those shows run on that now, you know, at the last probably, yeah, every show I've been on in the last bunch of years, since like 2014 has been running Ableton, you know, and electronics. In addition to all of the stuff that you're doing, this crazy schedule that you keep, you are also an educator and yeah. you had done a lot of clinics and workshops over the years. And I know you kind of had a, almost like a brand in terms of a concept that you were teaching. And um, what are some of the teaching strategies that you like to instill into the, the sort of the next generation? Let's see. That's interesting. You know, a lot of it for me comes back to some of that stuff we were just talking about at the start about like really trying to direct people, especially young people these days 
more right at the music, you know, and I really think it's awesome that there's all these places now that you can learn all this stuff, like the mind blowing chops that people have at young ages. Like I can't even compete. I don't want to ever compete. I mm -hmm. it's going to happen, you know, but it's amazing. Those resources are there. I just hope that, and always try and direct young people to like, really remember the source and really remember the source of the joy you know, what really got this happening. And, you know, I remember all those moments, all those, you know, there's records where there's giant light bulb going on moments, you know, I can name them all. I always want people to make sure they can name them all for themselves, you know, or like the people that go, my favorite drummer is Weinberg from Slipknot. It's like, okay, that's late in the history of modern drumming. It's like, who was his influence? Who influenced Slipknot? Who, you know, go back there. Cause there's the root is where all the deep knowledge is, you know? And a lot of these things that all of the current drummers play or that I play, it's like, it all came from somewhere. Make sure you go get that knowledge, you know? The other thing I'm a little crazy about these days is really encouraging people, no matter what style of music they like, to learn how to play great swing time mm -hmm. because it changes everything, you know, and there's hip hop is swing based most of the time and so much even playing a rock shuffle. It's different if you know how to play really great swing time, you know, and that's one of the most valuable things I have ever learned from an early age. I had decent swing teachers when I was young. And then, I mean, I had Ed Soph, Steve Houghton and Joe Percaro teach me how to play swing time. And it's like, that's as good as it gets. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And it, especially like, in high school, I, I went to Telluride Jazz Camp, you know, the old band camp kid. And in Telluride, Ed Soap spent the whole time just, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, kid, you can do this. So let's let's really refine it. And even by the time I was in grade 11, I was probably playing swing very properly, you know, because those guys were like, as I was a kid, you know, to get it right. It, there was a funny payoff with that. Uh, when I was teaching college at Metalworks Institute, they had a drum festival there and we gave an award to Jim Blackley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you don't know who he was, he was a legend for teaching swing really. And, you know, how to play swing properly. And he taught legends, you know, and the funny thing was, is that both, I believe, Ed Sof and Steve Houghton studied with Jim at one point or another, right? And so I have this whole spiel about how they taught me how to play swing, right? And I'm, so I'm doing this clinic and I have it up on the board and I have my back to the audience and I'm like in the air showing the shape and how it's counted out in this demonstration. And as I'm doing it, I'm realizing Jim Blackley's like sitting, you know, third row watching this and I'm just going like, 
oh man, how's this going to go after? And then he walked up to me and he goes, that was right. That was really good. And I was like, oh, and then I said, well, I think it was your students that taught me that. And he was like, oh, well, and then he was all happy about that. So I, I was fortunate to spend a year studying with Jim close to the end yeah. of his life. And he would usually teach one student a day. Every student every day was de devoted to you. And each lesson was about two plus hours long. And yeah. and you'd walk in and he would get you to play everything at 40 beats per minute. Which yeah. and play quarter notes on a ride. So he would have a like a jazz play along track, and he wouldn't say anything. He would, he would just play this for like ten minutes, and then it wasn't until he saw that you started to figure out and and, and adjust, and it became more musical that he would move you on to the next exercise. <laughs> it was really zen, right, and exhausting. So when you would leave, you would just you felt like you were at the gym for like like for hours because it was just yeah. so so draining and and you know, and he was he was in living in Barrie so I was coming in from Hamilton so it's like a 90 minute drive to your lesson on a Saturday morning and then a 90 minute drive afterwards and sometimes you walk out and you're frustrated because you feel like you should you shouldn't even own a drumstick because you can't do anything <laughs> and then by the time you get back to Hamilton you go oh my god that was like one of the most amazing lessons ever because you, you have to absorb the concept because he wouldn't yeah. he wouldn't just tell you all the information yeah. he would just get you to do things but he wouldn't always tell you why you were doing right. things it wasn't right. until you figured it out mm -hmm. and he made you appreciate and value time and space and articulation yeah. and every note mattered yeah you know most of Jim's students will tell you it's like this profound experience for me it just it changed everything right. because i studied with him at a time where i was ready to absorb that lesson right yeah funny enough i i would love the opportunity to and and i'll probably make it happen at some point but like grab a lesson with steve houghton again one mm -hmm. day or something you know just to see it'd be hilarious and the other thing that it came from those guys again, too, that I always talk about in clinics is, is articulation. You just said it like long notes and short notes. I don't care what style of music you're playing. It's all, it all matters, you know, and it all makes a band sound better. So yeah, that, that kind of stuff. And also just really focusing on grooving and playing music. I, there's nothing wrong with being a hobbyist. There's nothing wrong with being a shredder in a bedroom. That's all great. It's all drums. It's all fun. It's all enjoyment. But if you're going to be out there working, there's just real clean fundamentals. And the more of those fundamentals I learn, often the less notes I play or the, the cleaner it all gets, put it that way. Well, for, for me, one of my pandemic projects was I set up a really simple studio at home so that I could just record myself and listen back to myself. Right. And that's one of the most humbling ways to really learn how well you're doing something, because you can sit behind a drum set or any instrument and it feels really good, but yeah. you need to listen back to a recording and you need to listen to the whole thing. You can't just listen to a couple of seconds and go, yeah, no, I, I'm, it's fine. No, you actually have to absorb and sit there and analyze and find the positives 
in the things that you're doing because you will only hear the negatives but the majority of the stuff that you do is going to be positive and you have to start to learn to hear those positive elements so that you're encouraged and you can see your progress right but you can't ignore the things that you hear that aren't quite yet at the level that you need to. And that's how you learn. And, and so I wanted to be a better studio musician. And the best way to do that is to practice recording and to try and right. get consistent sound. You learn how a microphone hears a drum versus your ear because a snare drum hit a certain way in a certain room sounds really good and you listen back to it on recording and it sounds terrible and then you can get like a thousand dollar snare drum that sounds amazing in a room and it sounds horrible on a record and you have something that you think you should throw in the trash that actually sounds unbelievably good so it's and what it does what i found for me what it did is it it got me to change how i heard sounds Right. It got me to change how I would tune my drums. And I like things fairly open, but now on my kit here, I've I've got things muffled a little bit more because it and it changes how I play and it makes me start to appreciate some of the the classic music that I used to listen to where everything kind of had that tone. And so learning how to record and taking the time to do that, I think is a really exceptionally great learning tool for musicians. Right. Right. Yeah. And I I really, you know, it's funny, I I went down the Jeff Percaro rabbit hole again. It happens almost yearly. But, you know, I found a few old Toto videos of them playing live. And, you know, it's just astounding how good they were live. And, you know, often bands aren't that good anymore because you can fix everything in the studio. And, you know, there is something to learning that. I was in a band a while ago that we had made about half a record you know sort of how people make records these days like sure well okay but punch me back in at the bridge and i'll play to the end you know and things like that and then we were asked to do uh, a live online thing and we just did it in our studio with all the same gear and it was like yeah okay well we can run the clicks off the tracks we have be fine and we played the all the songs we had recorded we played them all live and then realized when we mixed that for this broadcast thing, we were like, well, that sounds better than our record does. <laughs> so we scrapped the whole record and had to go back. And like, we started tracking the whole record of like, I am only going to play full takes. Mm -hmm. If I didn't get a take from top to bottom, we're doing it again. And now that's, and it worked so well for like, energy and how it felt it just felt alive after that and we we stopped correcting things that was the other thing like we wouldn't i don't know that drum feels a little shady not fixing it because all the records i love have tons of shady fills on it you know so that's really carried over to like my own studio and when i track drums for people it's just how i track now i go full takes and you know when it's other clients i'll occasionally go cut some takes together like ah the ending sucked on that one i'll go find a better ending and copy paste but the en energy of it i play the whole song from top to bottom and sometimes if it's really hard that gets frustrating because it's like you play the first verse like 45 times before you get a take you play all the way to the end you know so, but it, it really makes a difference in the energy of it to me.
Well, and what I found for me is I, I tend to take the same approach primarily because it's easier for me to do a full take than to try and edit takes together because that's a whole other thing that's all yeah. completely different learning curve. But you will often redo a take because there's a part you didn't get right. What you don't always take into consideration is that by redoing it, the other parts get better. Right. And so I will find a take that I like and I will save it. And then yeah. I will say, okay, you know, I'm going to do another ones, but I'm the one I've done. It's fine. I'm, I'm done, but now I can just play. And so suddenly yeah. you can just be more relaxed. And then I might save different versions of them and then come back the next day and listen to them again. Because when you listen to them immediately, you're going to be extremely critical. Yeah. One of the things that I started doing sometimes, because we all tend to be self-critical with our own work is I try and listen back to a recording that I've done and imagine that it's somebody else playing right. the drums yeah so that i'm not listening to the things that i made a mistake on i'm listening right. to it going okay someone handed me this recording let's just listen to it as a fan and then you go back and go hey that thing that was kind of cool but the thing that's kind of cool is actually the thing you didn't like in the first place right or i will listen to some of my favorite recordings and listen to it in terms of a, a producer standpoint and go, okay, if I was in the studio now, I love this, but if I was in the studio now and they played this, would I get them to do it again? Right. And, and you start to realize, you know what? Sometimes the things that you grew up loving are the things that never would have made it out of the studio if they were actually recorded now. And so you have to change your listening. I did a Doc Walker record with Justin Niebank producing in Nashville, and there was one tune that we knew was going to be a single too and it had a fill at the end that like i did not like it and i was just like i was mortified and he's like that's the one and i was like dude you gotta let me fix the fill and he was like you're not fixing the fill you're not fixing the fill and like we're kind of getting into it and he goes charlie watts wouldn't fix the fill and then he walked away and the fill never got fixed and by the time the record came out I don't even remember what fill it was. Mm -hmm. I can't find it. I don't, I was like, I don't even remember what we were arguing about. I don't hear anything wrong. So, you know, it's just that it's like, man, you can find stuff on every record, you know, that, that I love that I wouldn't let go now. You know, the one trick I have though, what you were saying is that when I go track for somebody now, um, like I'll go down to my studio and I'll, I'll hit record and I'll play it about six times or like get six that I or five or six that I go. Yeah, I like these. And then I just close the computer and go home and I don't listen. And then I listen the next day when I I don't even remember what take four is, you know, then I listen fresh and go. I don't hear those little things then when I do that, you know, it often solves that problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah for, for sure so man i'm more critical than anybody it's great but there's nothing wrong with that as long as you embrace the opportunities to improve and get better and not let them stop you from your progress right what are some of the things that you are looking forward to in this coming year well um the uh the project with christina is really a focus right now and really taking off. And I'm really focusing on that this fall. I'm doing a handful of shows with Kim Mitchell filling in for Dave Langeth again. I'm doing a few street heart shows. One of the things we're working on very hard right now is that 
we're working on potentially relocating. So, you know, just more things, more places, more. So that's happening a bit right now. And, uh, but really it's this project really trying to get this off the ground in a, in a large way, you know, and still doing all the things. So if people are interested in reaching out or following the things that you're doing, what's the best way to connect with you? Um, Instagram, Chris Suds and, uh, and Facebook, Chris Sutherland. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet and my YouTube page always has things, but if you follow any of those, mostly Instagram and Facebook, you'll, you'll be up to speed and things are changing dramatically and rapidly all the time. So, yeah. And I, I'm hoping I've been, we've been throwing it around. We don't have any dates yet, but I'm hoping also before too long, there'll be a stream of, uh, drum clinics again, uh, cause I'm a new Yamaha artist. So we've been talking about getting out there and doing that with maybe some of the new things I'm doing. So that's pretty exciting. Chris, I love your positive attitude, your passion for the things that you do and your commitment to excellence and really trying to encourage and inspire everyone. It's an absolute pleasure. And I'm really excited to see what the next steps are for you. And I wish you all the best. Thanks so much for this. This was really fun. Thank you. We'll connect again soon. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.